In severe iron deficiency, um, women complain of chest pain, palpitations, and not shorts of breath, they describe it as an air hunger. When they get to the top of the stairs, they just don't seem to be able to get the air into their lungs. And they have to, they feel faint and they have to sit down. And this is a very common reason why otherwise fit and healthy women, um, normally with heavy menstrual bleeding, end up in the emergency department of hospitals uh, and, and get investigated for cardiac disease. And in fact, it's the iron deficiency. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and today joining me from Perth to talk all about iron is Professor Toby Richards. Welcome, Toby. Good morning or good afternoon, depending what time you're listening to this. <laughs> exactly. Morning for us. We're both in the morning, even though we're different time zones. Um, you've joined me nice and bright for you in Perth. So today we're here to talk about iron. You're uh, a specialist in iron. Uh, got some great information on uh, iron homeostasis, iron deficiency, and, and ways of treating iron. And, and we'll also hopefully look at some novel strategies of iron therapy that's maybe emerging. Um, but before we jump in, as we often do, I'd like to get a bit of a background on our uh, guest. Now, as I understand, you're a professor of surgery who's now moved into the area of iron. So can you describe how that's occurred? Yeah, it's, it's not that far-fetched, but... If you regard undergoing a major operation as running a marathon, the key is to get fit and optimized prior to the event so that you come through um, with minimal complications and ability to recover. And one of the biggest problems in major surgery is that people are unwell, hence they're having the operation. We might yeah. be removing a cancer or replacing a joint or something like that. And Anemia is very common in this patient group. So about a third of people are anemic prior to surgery. And the underlying cause is either true iron deficiency or disruption of the iron metabolism pathways due to the, the disease. And then um, when you come into hospital, you have an operation, which is blood loss. Uh, we do lots of blood tests. Um, and so most people leave hospital anemic. Um, and that has an impact on their outcome. So over the last 20 years, we've been looking at strategies to address that, to try and improve uh, patient welfare, uh, their recovery, and ultimately their quality of life. Excellent. And uh, you've got a clinic in the UK, is it the Iron Clinic? That's correct. We actually... Um, Set that up about six years ago, and we predominantly treat women, and the fundamental causality is normally heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and we've provided that service essentially at a not-for-profit over the last seven years. Um, and yeah, we, the, the demand is never-ending. I was going to ask, so there was obviously a demand there, and what's the response like, and how's the clinic coping? Has it grown? or? Well... We started this up because as part of our research, we wanted to understand what was the impact, i.e. what was the quantifiable impact of iron deficiency on physical performance. And the auspice being, are you fit enough for surgery? And so if I spend time giving you an iron infusion, how much fitter can I make someone prior to surgery? And that has a bearing uh, in the elderly, which might determine the size of the operation, the need for intensive care, etc. Um, and it's all—it's all about fitness. And so, clearly, I can't take a bunch of seventy-eight-year-old people who are unwell waiting for surgery and stick them on a treadmill and exercise them. Um, so, what what we had was a variety of different PhD students looking at a variety of different areas. So we've got one PhD student whose sole work is looking at the impact of iron deficiency and actually heavy menstrual bleeding on mental health. Um, 
We have laboratory work looking at iron in cellular function, cellular respiration, um, and how aerobic metabolism impacts muscle function. And then we wanted to look at, in a fit and healthy person, if they're iron deficient, how much does that impact their physical performance? So we twinned up with um, one of the institutes of sport, very similar to WACE or the Canberra Institute here, who we also do work with. And we devised a series of experiments. And we wanted to identify a group of people who are likely to have iron deficiency. And so that's women and women with heavy menstrual bleeding. So the first question we wanted to address was, is heavy menstrual bleeding a problem in women who do regular sport? And so we did a very simple questionnaire, and that questionnaire asked four questions. Do you need to double protect? Do you have to get up at nighttime to change your protection? Or change your protection more than 12 to 14 times in a cycle? Do you have fear of flooding or accidents? And I mean, it can be incredibly debilitating. People don't go outside for days. Uh, and do you pass clots? Now, two of those symptoms um, indicate heavy menstrual bleeding, which medically is defined at greater than 80 mils of blood loss per cycle. Now, putting that in perspective, that's a liter of blood a year. That's, that's a lot. That's like major surgery. So we ask these questions to uh, a thousand women undertaking the London Marathon. And simultaneously, we asked the questions to um, the Olympic athletes and the British Olympic team with whom we've been working. And the answer was an overwhelming yes. The instance of heavy menstrual bleeding is just as common in Olympic athletes as it is in a park runner. Um, and it's about one in four or one in three women at any point in time. So we then studied that a little bit more, and we did blood tests on 250 women doing a half marathon. And we showed that if you had heavy menstrual bleeding, about half of them had iron deficiency. So having established that there's a population of need, we then put out an advert through the sports clubs in London. And it's the only clinical trial I've ever run that we had a waiting list. Um, we recruited in two weeks over 180 people. Yeah. And so we took uh, fit and healthy women. Uh, thank you to the Vegan Marathon Runners Club. Uh, they were the number one hit for iron deficiency. Um, and they had a full exercise treadmill test, VO2 max testing, and something called hemoglobin mass. We then gave them intravenous iron and repeated the testing. And we could quantifiably um, state that if you have severe iron deficiency, your VO2 max would improve by 5 to 6% within two weeks, which is the equivalent of three months of high-intensity training in the gym. So a, really a dramatic finding. And so we set up the iron clinic in order to provide this service um, as a service provider. But then what happened is the phone kept ringing. And so we couldn't sort of shut it down. Um, and so we turned it into a company and it's run by our PhD students and our collaborators. We do a lot of work promoting correct information on social media, Facebook. Um, and we've been running essentially this not-for-profit uh, for the last six years in the UK. Oh, brilliant. Wow. So I just want to drill in a bit more. You mentioned some of the, the benefits of um, restoring iron in um, athletic performance. But you've also done, from some of the, the surveys and so forth you've conducted on Facebook, you've built quite a, a long laundry list of symptoms of iron deficiency, which I think go above, above and beyond some of the, the better known ones. So can you describe some of the potential signs and symptoms of iron deficiency? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll just, if I don't mind, I'll just make a correction. Iron yes. is not a doping drug. Um, it doesn't enhance performance. Yeah, what well, our results showed was that iron deficiency impacts performance and reduces it. Yeah, yeah. To put this into context, we took the British Olympic rowing team, apologies to the Australians, because um, we're very good in Britain at sitting down sports, um, and we randomized them to intravenous iron or placebo, and it didn't enhance performance uh, at all. 
in this group in a normal population. So it's not a, it doesn't enhance, it's just a building block. Yeah. Um, but it corrects deficiency. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely correct. And that, you know, this is a fundamental um, issue in medicine and something I, I spend a lot of time training my medical students is um, talk and listen to your patients. Just because it's written in a textbook, don't try and don't try and shoehorn their symptoms into what you think your diagnosis is. So we put a big survey out on Facebook and we use Facebook a lot um, and ask women, what are your, your symptoms? And we got 10,400 odd responses um, and we had a poll. So there were 78 symptoms. Now, mechanistically to confirm that, what you do is you, you rank those, those symptoms, you mix it up and you feed it back and you get people to re-rank them as a validation exercise. And we, we then came up with a list of 25. And, and you're absolutely right. Everyone talks about fatigue and tiredness and exhaustion. But, you know, I get fatigued and tired and exhausted and I'm not iron deficient. So it's a bit nebulous. But there's some really interesting symptoms that nail it down. In severe iron deficiency, um, women complain of chest pain, palpitations, and not shortness of breath, they describe it as an air hunger. When they get to the top of the stairs, they just don't seem to be able to get the air into their lungs. And they have to, they feel faint and they have to sit down. And this is a very common reason why otherwise fit and healthy women, um, normally with heavy menstrual bleeding, end up in the emergency department of hospitals uh, and, and get investigated for cardiac disease when in fact it's the iron deficiency. Another one, is the neurological impact best described in mothers as mummy brain you know mummy is forgetful mummy doesn't know what's going on and that's what and it's regarded as normal and like heavy menstrual bleeding it's so common it's been normalized but it's not normal and <clears throat> because the brain is so heavily reliant on iron for metabolism and glucose if you're iron deficient it doesn't function properly forgetfulness, foggy brain. The, the brain fog is probably the number three symptom that women describe. But importantly, in a survey of 9,000 women who'd had an iron infusion, one in four of them had been medicated for depression and anxiety. And we see this a lot. Women with severe chronic iron deficiency are withdrawn. Uh, they don't socially engage correctly. They act like a, uh, someone who is suffering mental illness and you, you transform them once you treat the iron deficiency. And the commonest response is two, three months later, we get the husband phoning up saying, thank you for giving my wife back. Now, that, that's brain and heart. Um, other things are, you, you hear about fatigue, and, but it's muscle cramps, restless leg syndrome at night and twitching. And in severe iron deficiency, um, there's a couple of little things. And one of them is called pica. And it's this really weird, completely unexplained desire to eat strange foodstuffs. It's described in the textbook as eating soil, but the reality is it's eating ice is number one. But we've also had people coming in going, yeah, um, yeah, plaster is dust. I don't know why I'm eating the plaster is dust in the house. And then we've had people come in and say, well, I'm obsessed with bicycle shops. I keep walking in because I love the smell of rubber. Um, it's totally unexplainable. And as soon as you give them an iron infusion, it goes within 24 hours. Wow, 24 hours. Yeah, it's, it's quite astonishing. It's quite astonishing. Yeah. But the breadth of symptoms are huge. Yeah, and a lot of what we do is when we're talking to these women is is we acknowledge and we recognize it, and that to them, it's n they suddenly realize it's not them; it's it's actually the illness, yes. and that's a huge weight off their minds. Just one final area: gut complaints. Are there some um, links with iron deficiency and like bloating and um, not not specifically? So. The common, a very good reason for developing iron deficiency is problems with the gut. Yeah. Um, but iron deficiency per se doesn't really have, I haven't come across that symptom on gut pain uh, or irritable bowel syndrome. We have, so, but. Yeah. 
No problem. So you mentioned um, earlier it obviously affects women uh, almost predominantly, particularly um, if they've got heavy menstrual bleeding, um, uh, vegetarianism. Are there other factors that uh, I mean, probably paint the picture of the woman struggling to restore or uh, her iron status that could um, affect her, yeah, her iron status, um, body composition and so forth? Um, what about activity with the, is it the, the actual physical force of running as well on the, the bone? Yeah, look, there's, I mean, the, the commonest cause is um, pregnancy because pregnancy, pretty much, the baby needs your entire body's iron stores. Um, so a couple of pregnancies in short succession, a pregnancy with a cesarean or any blood loss, that's number one. Number two is heavy menstrual bleeding. Vegetarianism, look, there's absolutely no issues about being a vegetarian. I haven't got any preconceived ideas at all. It's just that quite simply, uh, vegetable, plant-based iron is 10 times less absorbed than uh, meat-based iron. Uh, and it's because there's a two, the two totally separate transport mechanisms in the body. There's a deliberate heme uh, absorption pathway, and then there's a generic um, divalent metal transporter one pathway. So, uh, and that's where zinc, magnesium, and iron gets absorbed very badly. Um, so vegetarians, if you're a vegetarian and you're a woman and you're a teenager who's growing and requires extra iron, uh, that is a bit of a perfect storm. Other causes of iron deficiency, um, the, the fourth commonest cause in, in high-income countries is osteocolitis uh, and IBD. So that's a mixture of failure of the gut to absorb properly and excess loss from uh, blood from the disease. But athletes are an interesting area, and there's there's been a lot, um, a lot of, what shall I say, opinion, not necessarily uh, supported by accurate research in this area. There's an awful lot of magazine medicine uh, because there's an awful lot of magazines. Um, now, athletes, they're women, so uh, the fundamental cause is. Um, the same problems as women down the street, and that's what we've identified previously. There are a couple of extra things about athletes, uh, particularly endurance athletes. Um, one is the skin is the richest organ in the body uh, for iron. So your iron concentration in the skin is up to 10 times more than that in the blood. And the only way you can lose iron from the body is either bleeding or sweat. And so sweat, uh, a litre of sweat is half a milligram of iron. So if you're an endurance athlete uh, doing marathons, you can actually lose um, three to four milligrams of iron a day, which is essentially the same as a normal absorption. And that, that has a chronic impact. Coupled with it is the impact of exercise on uh, inflammation. We, we, we all think that if we go for a run or go to the gym, our muscles ache the next day. That's because of the lactic acid. It's not. Lactic acid is a byproduct of metabolism. You breathe it off in minutes. But the muscles are an overlapping um, uh, process of fibers. And in heavy exercise, you can cause damage to those fibers. And, that's, and that causes inflammation. And so when you watch athletics on the telly, that's why people jump into ice baths to settle down the inflammation. And inflammation acts like a chronic disease that disrupts the normal iron metabolism pathways. And we've shown this in athletes that uh, about two to four hours after uh, heavy intensity training, uh, the, the master regulator of iron, hepcidin, which controls our metabolism, is significantly elevated uh, at that time period. So <clears throat> athletes are a very finely tuned balance between optimal performance, harm over training, um, and you know, underlying capacity. And I think they have um, very finely tuned iron regulatory pathways. It's a whole discussion in its own right. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I, I wouldn't mind diving a little bit into that now, that um, iron homeostasis, because it's an area I find fascinating. And 
and really complex. I don't know any other sort of nutrient that's got seemingly the, the checks and balances of iron. Um, and my understanding is because iron's this double-edged sword that it's important, say, for hemoglobin and all our uh, enzymes and so forth, but it also is um, needed by like bacteria infections for, um, for uh, division and growth. So um, we've got these systems to try and cap it in a sense and also downregulate when there's an infection and generally the response is inflammation, as you mentioned. So, um, yeah, can you describe what happens with our stores of iron in our body and, and how this is regulated with these, these hormones? Absolutely. Um, the, body, the body is an incredible thing. It's, it's a balance. Everything in the body is balanced. A very good example of this is if I punch you in the arm, you get a bruise. And that is disruption of the blood vessels bleeding under the skin and it hurts. But then the body absorbs that and your bruise goes within a few days. So you've got a process of damage and a process of recovery. And everything in the body is a balance. Same as if you drink um, five liters of water, you suddenly don't swell up, you pee it out. So what goes in comes out and the body adjusts to what it needs. Exactly the same as with iron. So the normal pathway of iron is you eat it. You then need a very acidic stomach to break down your food stuff and dissociate essentially the iron um, in that setting. Iron is then absorbed just after the stomach in a section of the small bowel called the duodenum. Now, as mentioned, there's two pathways, a plant-based pathway, DMT1, and a heme-based pathway, um, HCP. And that iron then goes into the gut cell. And from there, that's when the control process takes place. If you're low on iron, the iron gets into the cell and then it's actively moved out by a a protein called ferroportin. So ferrous, ferric, ferrous, iron, iron, port, transport, out. And so the iron's moved out of the intracyte and it goes into a receptacle. And that receptacle moves it to the iron stores. So it goes from ions inside the cell, it's ferroportin, transported out. It's then moved in the blood by transferrin, transport the ferrin. And it's stored in ferritin, which is basically a biscuit tin. Um, So the iron comes in, gets into the gut cell. The body goes, yeah, I'll have some of that, thank you very much. And so sends a signal down, it's moved out, moved in the blood and moved into the storage. Now, when the storage is high, ferritin is high, you have a look on the inside, yep, got loads of biscuits, we can have a tea party, that's great. The body uh, sends a messenger called hepcidin back down to the cell and it tells the ferroportins, guys, you don't need to keep loading up uh, anymore, we're full, that's fine, Uh, the doors are shut. And so quite simply, the iron can still get into the gut cell, but it can't get out. and the gut cells turn over regularly every day. So um, you simply don't absorb anything more. And it, it's an incredibly effective pathway. Um, if your iron stores are adequate, and that would be a ferritin above 50, and bear in mind that there's a lot of individual variation here. Uh, one person's 50 could be another person's 250. But the bottom line is it's it, the ferritin is a biscuitin. It's a cage holding a couple of thousand atoms of iron. Um, If you've got plenty, that's all you need to know. Um, And and 250 is not five times 50. It's it's, because it doesn't measure the amount of iron within the ferritin. It's it's essentially that is your normal range. And so at 50, your iron absorption is about two milligrams of iron a day. So really not very much at all because you've got 4,000 milligrams of iron in the body. And that iron is normally lost, as I mentioned, through the skin. If you're a woman and you have, and with, with periods, then you might need an extra two to three milligrams of iron a day. And so um, your ferritin oscillates a little bit more and you can probably absorb four to, four to five milligrams a day. Now, in studies where they've taken healthy volunteers and again, apologies, it's, it's predominantly all the researchers in women here. Um, and they radio label uh, food 
Between when your ferritin uh, drops from 50 down to 30, your ability to absorb goes up. So your serum hepcidin goes down and you can transport more iron into the blood. And you can pretty much manage that with a change in diet, um, well-balanced, regular meat diet, um, or if you're vegetarian, lentils, pulses, soya, etc. Green leafy vegetables, utterly, utterly hopeless. Popeye was completely wrong because the iron is so tightly bound to the foodstuff, it's very, very difficult to absorb it, even with vitamin C, which makes a negligible difference. So, sorry, spinach, hopeless, wrong, doesn't work. Um, unless you're eating two kilos of spinach a day. So that, you know, that's like um, two giant bin bags. No one does it. Um, <clears throat> so between 30 and 50, you can kind of eat your way um, out of iron deficiency. But below 30, you start running into trouble. You, you will need to supplement and um, to get that iron absorption capacity up. And below 15, essentially, your iron stores are completely empty. Um, and I can, I can go on to that in a second. But <clears throat> iron uh, supplementation, which should be a ferritin below 30, you're looking at taking an iron tablet or an iron liquid. But the, the contents of those tablets, marketing aside, are pretty much the same. It's iron sulfate, iron gluconate, iron fumarate, iron bisgluconate. It's pretty much the same. Now, it might say 200 milligrams, but that's the iron and the sulfate. So it's, it's normally around about 45 to 65 milligrams of elemental iron that you need. And if you've got a ferritin less than 30, you will probably, your body will be able to absorb about six to eight milligrams of iron a day, about 200 milligrams of iron in a, in a calendar month. And the interesting thing is that Traditionally, if someone's really iron deficient, it's like if one tablet doesn't work, give two. I just double the dose, crank it up. But that doesn't work because the iron gets into the enterocyte within minutes. The ferroportin, the porters, chuck it out into the transport receptacle. And very, very quickly, your ferritin acknowledges this and sends the hepcidin back to say, guys, we filled up our stores. Um, and so the transport mechanism shuts down. So there's no point really taking a second tablet the same day because that cycle is about 24, 36 hours. And there's now pretty good evidence that if you take an iron tablet every other day, it's probably as good as taking it every day, uh, if not twice a day. Um, and that's important because if you keep taking iron tablets, they can have side effects uh, causing constipation, diarrhea, and belly ache, and that's because the iron's inside the gut cell, and too much iron inside the gut cell causes it to essentially die and slough off, and that causes discomfort. It's not overload; it's just local toxicity. I, you just got too much iron in one place. Right. Right. I mean, too many teenagers in one room. It's you know, chaos yeah. is going to ensue. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So just to underscore that while we're here on the, the ferritin, obviously the the absorption is variable depending on your body's iron status. The, the, the lower your ferritin, the, generally the more you'll absorb and it hits a ceiling. Um, so 50, and we're discussing this a little bit offline um, around optimal, whether that's a thing or not, but physiologically it seems like 50 is the getting through the threshold of insufficiency. Yeah, I think normality, there's a lot of uh, look, there's a lot of chat about what's optimal. There isn't an optimal. We know that because we took a bunch of Olympic athletes and gave them shed loads of iron and it made no difference whatsoever. Yeah. And iron is not a performance-enhancing drug. It's an essential substrate. If you're building a house, if you've got one pallet of bricks or 10 pallets of bricks, it doesn't make the house go up faster. That's to do with the builders. Um, so... What we know is deficiency. So 15 is empty. You know, there are no bricks in the house. Nothing's happening at all. 30 is you're starting to cut. You're pretty depleted. Um, you need to do something about it. The little warning light on the petrol tank of your car has come on. You're still working, but mm, you haven't got, you've got to do something about it. 
30 to 50, you can eat yourself uh, and manage yourself uh, in that area. And above 50, essentially, that's normal body homeostasis. So, and, and adding more iron in isn't going to push your ferritin higher and higher and higher. Um, people who eat steak every single day are not walking around with ferritins of 500. The body has adjusted to the individual. Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Some find after a gastrointestinal infection or round of antibiotics, they experience ongoing gastrointestinal symptoms, such as a change in their bowel motions or more bloating and flatulence. This was the case for Julia, who had taken multiple rounds of oral antibiotics over the course of six months. She reported constipation with undigested food in her stools, as well as bloating and some pain. Given her history, her practitioner prescribed a combination of probiotics to help restore her gastrointestinal microbiota. After just a couple of weeks, her bowel motions became regular and visibly healthy, and the bloating and pain subsided after about four weeks. To learn more about the combination of probiotics Julia was prescribed, namely Lactobacillus rhamnosus, LGG, Saccharomyces cerevisiae boulardii, and Bifidobacterium anomalous subspecies lactis BB12, visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now, back to the podcast. We're still in the homeostasis. Uh, one area that really I find interesting, and maybe there's therapeutic, a therapeutic target now in the future, is around the recycling of iron. As you mentioned, like our bodies hold about four grams of iron, yet we only absorb maybe two milligrams and we, our um, red blood cells, it seems like it's almost a reverse nightclub where the, the immune system checks the age of the red blood cell and eliminate it if it's too old and um, reuse that iron. Can you describe that process? And, um, yeah. and No, absolutely, absolutely good point. So let's just say for a, you're 65 kilos in size and you're therefore you've got about four litres of blood in your body um, and you probably carry about 4,000 milligrams of iron in your body. Half of that iron is used to make the red stuff inside your blood. The red stuff is hemoglobin. So iron is used to make hemoglobin, which forms the red stuff inside the blood. And a blood cell lives for about three months. And as it gets older, it gets a bit fragile, a bit frail, and it goes through a filter. Uh, and that filter is called your spleen. And the spleen is like the sort of central police station of the body. Um, the blood goes through that. The white cells, if you've got an infection, re report that to the police station and the immune system activates. The red cells um, go through the filter in the spleen. If they're old and they're fragile, they get broken up and they get recycled. You pee out the debris, but the iron then gets transported by transferrin and stored in ferritin, which is stored in the liver, and that's your reserve store. So half of your iron in your body is responsible for making the red cells, and that's they are incredibly well recycled in the body. Your liver is, is the housing station for your ferritin, i.e. your stores. That's where iron is stored in reserve. And you store about a thousand milligrams of iron in reserve. So essentially, I could bleed you out and you will have enough iron to um, build your own blood supply again. Um, a, a thousand milligrams of iron will give you two liters of blood. Now, separate to that, you've also got the residual thousand milligrams. And, and then I'm making these numbers mm. simple for illustration. And that, 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 that iron is really important in the muscle and in every cell in the body, particularly in nervous tissue. And um, bear with me as I explain this. Your, when you breathe, your red cells go to the lungs, collect the oxygen, and they deliver the oxygen to the tissues. Now, in every cell of the body, that oxygen and your food, i.e. your glucose, has to be converted to energy. And energy in the human is something called ATP. And so we have a little nuclear power station in every single cell of the body, 
And that nuclear power station takes oxygen and takes glucose and with aerobic metabolism kicks out energy. And that nuclear power station, every single step in there, the enzymes have all got iron in them. So if your iron deplete, your, your aerobic metabolism doesn't work properly, which then affects every cell in the body. So particularly the brain where aerobic metabolism and glucose is vitally important. And that's why you feel fatigued and tired, brain fog, not thinking clearly, get muscle twitching, muscle cramps. And also in your muscles, that's why you're not performing properly if you're iron deficient. Um, so you've got 4,000 milligrams of iron in the body. Half of it, a little bit more is in your red cells and that really well uh, recycled. You have about a quarter of your iron in reserve. And then the rest of it is important for metabolism in the body. So if you are pregnant and have a baby, the baby can be supplied by the stores in the liver uh, without mum becoming unwell. But if the stores are not up to speed or you're running a bit empty, you empty the stores to keep your red cells growing and then you start stealing the iron out of the muscles and out of the, uh, the nervous tissue. So you become iron deficient long before you come anemic. Anemic is like the end stage of the disease. So you, uh, and this is another misconception. You can have a ferritin of less than 15, i.e. be profoundly iron deficient with a completely normal blood count. Um, and the symptoms come from the iron deficiency, not from the anemia. Because otherwise, every time you want to give blood, the day after you give blood or the week after you feel blood, we don't have people walking around feeling foggy, unwell, muscle cramps and all the rest of it. They feel fine. Yeah. So it's because the, the, the red blood cells is the probably like has the highest priority. They um, essentially save the, the iron for the red blood cells. Um, so you could have a normal um, hemoglobin, but your ferritin is low and that reflects perhaps your mitochondria and so forth are deficient in iron. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. Okay. Um, so I might use that to talk about uh, hemoglobin, so that sort of end stage or along the spectrum of iron deficiency. Um, there's differences generally in um, reference ranges between females and males, which is, uh, again, probably a, an area of contention um when you look at the actual physiology. So can you describe the, the current ranges and why you think maybe they're not ideal for women? Absolutely. There are two aspects here. One is when you go to your laboratory, they will give you a blood test. It might say ferritin of 35 and it'll give you a range. And that range could be say 12 to 270. That is not a diagnostic range. That is a therapeutic range related to the machine used in that laboratory. So every laboratory might have different machines and they're calibrated slightly differently. And so if you want to compare one laboratory to another, all they do is they go into the population, they get 200, 300 people, and they plot the average and two standard deviations. And that's all those reference ranges are. It's just simply a calibration exercise for a local laboratory. And it's commonly misinterpreted by doctors and patients um, as being the diagnostic range, and it's not. And that, that's a huge problem. It is slowly getting corrected by laboratories who are now start, starting to say lower limits of normal in the population are. Um, but it is a big issue. That's a really big issue. The second is that um, there is a different hemoglobin level to define anemia for women compared to men. A little bit of history here. It was a panel of nine men in 1959 um, who reviewed the average and distribution of hemoglobin levels uh, in women in a set population. And they said, well, on average, it's one gram per deciliter lower than men, so it's 12, not 13. Again, this was commented on 10 years later by the World Health Organization to be arbitrary at best. 
And it's something in the last decade that we've been trying to flag and colleagues have been trying to flag that there really should be no difference between men and women. Um, and that's highlighted in a large population study out of the States called the NAME study, where they excluded women who had a ferritin less than 15 uh, from the heme, and then they recalculated the hemoglobin distribution. And guess what? It moves 10 grams per liter to the right. Um, so, yeah, it's an issue. Um, uh, but it, 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 it's something that also is important to realize. But the fundamental issue is if you think you're iron deficient, you need to test the iron levels, not the hemoglobin levels. If you take your car in for a service and that it's running low on petrol, you don't get the guy to measure the oil. So if you're iron deficient, you need to be tested for your serum ferritin. Um, and if there's any causal concern there, you, you can also look at your transferrin saturations as well, which is your transport protein. That there is a complete myth that needs to be fundamentally dispelled that you cannot be iron deficient unless you're anemic. That's utter rubbish. Um, and it's because if you're iron deficient, just give someone time and eventually they'll become anemic. But that might be a year that you're allowing that person to suffer. Mm. And with the ferritin, there's often discussion around, as you mentioned, inflammation um, can potentially elevate ferritin. So could you get um, false negatives? How do you sort of factor that into measuring So what iron? happens is that, and this comes back to surgery, we don't truly understand iron metabolism in the surgical patient because it's a balance between inflammation and blood loss. Now, what happens in inflammation is you artificially turn up the hepcidin levels. So that's the, the messenger. And so that if you, if you increase hepcidin levels because the body's inflamed, the hepcidin goes around the body saying, guys, we do not need to transport any more iron. So stop down tools. Everyone stop work. The ferroportin gets shut down. And so what happens is your serum ferritin level goes up because you're not transporting iron out uh, of, of, of any of the containers. So your red cells are still being metabolized. You're still filling up the ferritin internally, but the ferritin can't, the iron can't be moved out of the ferritin. Um, so the, the blood measurement of ferritin goes up. Um, and that is directly related to markers of inflammation. And it makes it really difficult to understand in someone who's unwell if they're iron deficient or not. So, so is there a... No, no, we don't have a really good answer for that. <laughs> oh, okay, so there's, there's no like blood tests, CRP or anything? There's a cutoff where... No, okay. it's index yeah. of suspicion and the ancient technique of talking to the patient. <laughs> yeah, good one. Okay, uh, so I want to talk about um, iron repletion strategies. You mentioned earlier around the different sort of oral iron therapies and, yeah, they're much of a muchness and too much on one day um, is a self-limiting thing, uh, which moved into your area of expertise around iron infusions. And I've seen that Australia is uh, one of the, probably the world leader in rates of iron infusions can you explain that and then we'll look at the benefits of iron infusions? Yeah, so um, iron, iron deficiency is a global issue. 1.8 billion people in the world are iron deficient. Um, and it affects one in three women at any point in their lifetime. Uh, and about 6 to 8% of the population in Australia, around about 8 to 10% of the population in the UK, um, and the worst population in the world is actually Venezuela um, and Africa, where it's about, you know, half of the female population. Now, the, the first line is to address your diet. Um, make sure you've got a well-balanced diet, and I won't go on uh, that anymore, but no spinach is probably the take-home message there. Sure. Second is to start a course of oral iron, uh, in, and, and to work out what works for you. Can you remember to do it alternative days or just once a day? If you get side effects, stop for a week, let your gut settle down and start off on a lower dose, maybe alternative days, see how it goes. But 
Still, one in four people can't tolerate oral iron or it simply does not work. If three months later your serum ferritin is not above 30, that's failure. And just keeping taking iron tablets is not the answer. So the other alternative is to bypass the whole absorption pathway, all that Hepstein stuff I've been talking about, and just get a drip of iron. So you just give iron into the blood and it goes straight into the ferritin and you're put back to normal. You fill up the petrol tank. And then around about 2008, 2009, new iron preparations came in. And this is really important because the older iron preparations um, were something called an iron dextran, uh, and they were associated with allergic reactions. Right. The new iron preparations are not associated with allergic reactions. However, there's still the myth being perpetuated. But the newer iron preparations, of which Australia's got several, um, are really good. They're safe. They're quite cheap in, in terms of healthcare costs. And you can essentially give an infusion in 15 minutes. Um, and within about 30 minutes after that, the patient can head home. So we do watch them. As with anything, there's always risk. If I never do anything to a patient, I will mm. never cause any harm. If mm. I do anything to a patient, there is a chance that I'll cause harm. If I take blood, I can cause a bruise, etc. Now, with an iron infusion, um, despite the best intents, sometimes there are things happen. And iron is a black substance. So if the line is not in properly or the vein blows and this happens, it's a reality, um, you can get a black stain on the hand, and that, that's a real problem because it can be permanent. Um, true reactions are vanishingly rare, about the same as the side effect profile of an antibiotic. So right. that's to put it in perspective. But what's happened is that because of the myths, we, we end up having to explain every single reaction and type. Um, but in reality, in Australia, the key to Australia is this is done in GP practices because it's MBS listed. And yeah. so there's been a massive uh, recognition by women who go, hang on, I've been on iron tablets on and off for eight years. I'm sick of this. Can I not just have an iron infusion? And then because it's covered by Medicare, GPs have gone, yeah, why not? And so quite correctly, access to iron infusions for women's health has become routine throughout Australia. Uh, and iron infusions are a top 20 procedure in Australia. Yeah. And you give about 10 times more than just about any other country in the world. Yeah, nice. And Australia has the lowest instance of anemia in the world. Yeah. Um, and this may be a myth um, and probably maybe more in the natural medicine circles around oxidative stress. So if you're putting this large amount of iron into the system, you mentioned it, it goes straight into ferritin. Um, I've got my chemistry confused, but ferric and ferrous iron, F2+, plus, F3+. Plus. Is there any concern around like transit or is it transit, this oxidative stress from iron? Not really. Um, the, the biggest problem is the fact that if you haven't got iron in your body, um, you, you've got disruption and normal balance. So you're more likely to have problems yeah. being iron deficient. And you're not overloading the body because, as I mentioned, the ferritin can store up to 1,000 milligrams of iron and the normal dose is 1,000 milligrams. So by the time you need an infusion, you're probably 1,000, 1,500 milligrams behind. So all we're doing is filling up the tank. If you were a car, you fill up the petrol tank, don't you, when you go to the petrol station. You don't fill it up. You don't think, oh, I'm, I'm just driving to my mum. That's about 108 kilometers away. I'll just fill up enough petrol for 108 kilometers. You fill up the tank. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons you asked me about the iron clinic, um, you know, I'm a surgeon by training. I've been in the field of iron for 20 years. Um, I'd say some of the most satisfying consultations and treatments I ever do are actually on iron deficiency. These people are so happy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you must see some rapid and miraculous turnarounds after an infusion. It can be truly transformative in some people. Wow. It really can. I bet. Uh, so I want to touch upon some um, emerging or novel approaches to iron replenishment. Um, there's a couple from the 
sort of natural medicine world and then uh, you, you published some research recently on some pharmaceuticals. So I'll start with um, the natural ones and I, I might give the background to the listeners on this one. I'd, I'd been looking into lactoferrin and uh, come across a, a bunch of research and to me it was <laughs> looking like a bit of a panacea. It seemed to um, raise ferritin and iron and hemoglobin in all sorts of populations from iron deficiency and pregnancy and children and so forth um and then i shared the information with you and <laughs> a bit of a plot twist so can you describe the, um your views on lactoferrin so look i think it's really important that we we do explore um all areas um to be perfectly honest there's so much misinformation and uh, magazine medicine about iron um if the information hopefully which i've given you which we believe to be correct uh, is followed, then I think that will solve a lot of issues. Um, now, lactoferrin is uh, an interesting and natural product. It, it varies a lot on how it's made. And it's important to understand data. Now, if I, if you came in to my client and I went, Nathan, mate, you're iron deficient, you must feel dreadful. You go, yeah, I suppose I do. I'm not feeling myself. Um, oh, look, let me help you. Oh, great, great. I'm enforcing things on you. And I go, here's a tablet. It's going to make you feel marvelous. And then I next see you two, month, two months later, I go, you must feel so much better. You're going to say, yeah, I feel better. And that's bias. If you're, if you're told you've got a problem and I give you a solution that I tell you is going to make you feel better, you're naturally going to respond that you feel better. And so when you design studies to test products, it, what we do is something called a double-blind randomization. So we take a population of people, so we might take 150 women, and we randomly allocate them. So 75 go one way and 75 go the other way. 75 might get um, a sweetie and 75 get an iron tablet. But the, the sweetie and the iron tablet looks exactly the same. So the patient has absolutely no idea what they're getting. And the person giving them the tablet is also doesn't know. So we call that double blinding. And that means that at the end of the study, we, we can report the true effect uh, that, that, it, that is there, including if only 60 out of 75 take the tablet. There's no point just reporting in the 60. You've got to report the group effect, um, the 75. And so, that, and so there's no loss to follow up. So really accurate, stringent reporting. And many trials, when they first start off, are observational, which are we identify someone we think is going to do really well from the, the treatment, we give them the treatment, and then everyone's delighted that the treatment works, and then we report our successes. And we might not report our not-quite-so-good results. There's bias in all aspects of the reportings in the data. So we've just got to be a little bit mindful of how these studies are conducted. But lactoferrin is an interesting product. It's naturally available. And we're not truly understanding how it, how it works. We think it acts uh, symbiotically, so it, it helps normal iron absorption. Uh, and it's less uh, toxic on the gut as well. And in some studies, um, it was getting really very good results. But those, the means of manufacture of the lactoferrin, um, it, only one company could produce those results and it just simply couldn't be reproduced. And so people's initial studies, which uh, delivered very nice results, other scientists and other doctors have not been able to reproduce those results. So it's sort of fallen from favor in the last five to 10 years. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm, um, but it hasn't translated into a panacea, a one-size-fits-all for everyone. So we've moved away from it a little bit. And the new data that I was talking about, absorption pathways for iron, where you start to move to alternative days and the different dosing, that's where a lot of the research is going now. Mm, mm. Um, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I hadn't seen the, the negative studies, so yeah, I was a bit um, obviously myself biased of the, the, the positive ones. Um, so as you mentioned, yeah, looking at the uh, uh, bioavailability now, 
So there's a couple forms of iron that are emerging which use different formats. So uh, first one's like ferric pyrophosphate. So that's an iron in some sort of phosphate, but they're often like added to a, some sort of emulsifier. I think sucrosomial is the, the flavour of the month. Uh, any thoughts on, on these these types of irons? So there has been a lot of rehashing of how the iron salt, the iron gluconate sulfate, whatever is, is made or then coated. Uh, you're tinkering a little bit there, um, but there are some good things that are coming out. So there's um, there are a few products, particularly in inflammatory bowel disease, that have been uh, tried and tested. That uh, uh, I think it's ferric maltol. Um, and that that's had some good results in early studies. It's quite expensive to develop these things, so they're, they're normally limited to inflammatory bowel disease patients. Um, but an area that is quite exciting is something called IHAT. Um, this is a, a product that was developed by um, actually a PhD student in Cambridge called Dora Pereira. Um, I'm just going to name drop my friend there. Phenomenal work, and what it is is a nano iron. It's it's tiny, tiny, tiny little iron, and it means it doesn't have to go through that transport process that uh, I talked okay. about. Yeah. So it just literally gets dissolved. It it's dissolvable, and it goes through. It, it can just make its way into the intracyte. So if you eat, if you eat five milligrams, you absorb four milligrams. So it's a really low dose. You could. You can almost have it like sprinkles on your porridge in the morning. Uh, and this is really important in lower income countries where money and acceptability is a problem. Um, and it's got the potential uh, to provide a little micronutrient that um, will be just enough to sustain children and uh, women in low income countries and potentially also in high income countries. And there's some work with the Gates Foundation looking at this right now. Uh, so I think that's quite an exciting area. Mm, fascinating. The other area is more at my end, which is the very complicated post-surgical uh, sick patients in hospital. And that's looking at modulators of inflammation, very topical at the moment with COVID, tozolizumab, et cetera. Yeah. Expensive drugs, not drugs that you can have in general practice. But there's also a new product out, which is something called a propyl hydroxylase inhibitor. And this is part of the genetic sequence of developing erythropoietin. So you can actually start modulating at a DNA and RNA level, um, the erythropoietin, which is the builder of red cells. And there's some interesting data coming out in the in really sick patients with kidney disease who are on dialysis where everything I've talked about is just thrown in a washing machine, mixed up, and it's it's these people suffer really badly with anemia. Um, there's some very interesting data on this completely new class of drugs uh, that, that may work uh, and have more than just anemia-related effects. Uh, so watch this space. Things will change. Hmm. Fascinating. Excellent. That's a really good tour of all the, the current and potential therapeutics. Thank you. All right, so we'll, we'll wrap up now. Um, maybe I can just quickly uh, play back a few highlights and you can add to that. So obviously iron deficiency is really common, particularly in uh, women of reproductive age. Um, and the, the symptoms can be varied. Uh, there's levels that we know are the absolute low limits that we need to correct we can start with diet, we can start with supplementation, but if it's not budging, an infusion may be warranted. Um, any other key messages you want to really reinforce before we sign off? No, I think that's, the, I think you summed it up very nicely. I, I think it is a particular problem in women's health and we must not accept the dogma of normality. Realisation that heavy menstrual bleeding is not normal. There are things that we as professionals can do to help that. And I do fundamentally believe that uh, women of reproductive age should have regular blood tests for their iron levels. Um, it's such a common illness and it is so easy to treat with such um, benefits to women. 
I think uh, all teenagers should have a blood test um, and I think anyone with a history of iron deficiency should have their uh, serum ferritin measured every two years as a minimum. Great. Toby, thank you. It uh, really reminds me why it's good to read papers, but even much better to speak to the experts who have spent decades in the field. I really uh, thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.